Hello and welcome to the final episode in the Voice by Maddie and the Sex Tech series. Today's guest is Chloe McIntosh, most known for co-founding Made.com, but has since taken the leap into the world of sex tech with her new venture, Kama. Kama is a sexual wellness platform focused on the science-backed idea that pleasure is health. But before we get into May.com and the journey to creating Kama, tell us what life was like pre-May.com, Chloe. So, no, I actually studied architecture. I went to l'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris and I chose architecture because I, I, I recognized that I was a creative person, but I was also quite concerned with the precarity that seemed to come with a lot of the creative industries. So I chose architecture because in France, it's the kind of most established of the uh, creative disciplines. And it's a seven year uh, degree. So I, I did about five years in Paris and then I came to London to do a summer, a summer job. Um, I actually basically presented myself to the offices of Norman Foster with a very, um, you know, a very light portfolio and then got the job for the summer. Um, my first job ever, I didn't speak very good English. Um, I really, really tried to, uh, you know, make myself useful when I was there. And then at the end of the summer, they actually offered for me to stay and um, offer me a full-time position, which was obviously a little bit unusual because in France, unlike in the UK, you have to do seven years in a block. If you interrupt your study, you have to kind of start from scratch again. But my school and uh, the studio made an arrangement, uh, kind of made an exception. And so I was able to continue to study while working full time, which meant that for the following three years, I was traveling back to Paris four times a year to pass exams. And then I would go back and, um, and, and work at Foster's. So in a way, it gave me a bit of a head start. You know, when I graduated, I was the youngest, actually, associate partner at Foster's because I had done the kind of, you know, onboarding. So it was great, but it was also super daunting because I was put in charge of projects and I had so little knowledge. Um, and I was exposed to also, you know, a very male-orientated industry. I didn't speak the language. It was... It was kind of a little crazy when I look back. Obviously, when you're in it, you're so excited to be working for such a prestigious architect in an industry that has, I think, up to 70% unemployment. You know, so for me, it was a major opportunity. And I obviously held on to the furniture. And eventually, I stayed there for nine years. Uh, so a really long time. Uh, I did a lot of projects in France, uh, but I also worked uh, on the on the working and some of you know it's in, it's a lot of engineering at Foster's. And at that time, I started realizing that I I was passionate about creativity and engineering and and using engineering to reveal creativity rather than design something and then ask the engineer to work it out. I think what Foster's does really well is to uh, bring that together from the get-go. So there's a creative process with engineering that for me really revealed that passion and actually is when I eventually went into the digital kind of world, I found again, you know, this kind of uh, uh, fusion between the two uh, as a way to create. Um, and it's, it's been a really a big part of my passion for digital um, has been mixing engineering and, and creativity. Do you look back at that time as make or break? Because that would break a lot of people. You know, people who even do, you know, their full term studying and do the full seven years and end up in that environment. The pressure, slight language barrier, you know, male dominated, you know, that that can be a really tough environment. But you went in even younger. Do you look back and think, you know, uh, that was make or break? I needed to I needed to make it through that to be where you are today. Well, first, I don't look back much, I have to say. My nature is that I intend to learn my lessons uh, on the spot and make decisions which I believe are the best that I can take then and not go back and think I should have done it differently. Or, you know, in a way, it's it's one of those things you're able to do when you're very young. And you have to think this is, you know, now almost 20 years ago. Uh, the professional environment was very different from now all people wanted to talk about was how much they work. You know, it was this time where hours on the desk is how you value someone's contribution. So I was working every night and every weekend for six years and everyone else in the office was doing that. We were all in a way, you know, at the school of learning architecture with one of the biggest masters uh, in in the world. Uh, Pay was very poor. Uh, which often happens with creative industries, you know, because you're doing what you love, but you're not really paid for it. 
So there was a lot of challenges, but it also, the hustle, you know, is what gave me, you know, the, the strengths that I'm still using now in like creating businesses. I think that when you're completely on your own in a new place, I had to find a place to live, which basically meant that I went door to door because I didn't know London at all. I went door to door um, in the streets behind the office in Battersea and uh, spent three days until someone agreed to rent me a room in in a building you know because that's the, that's the all i knew i had no other ways to uh, find my way around the city and understand you know how to settle down so i think there was definitely it was definitely challenging but i have no memories of despair and you know feeling lost uh, i was just embracing the opportunity as much as i could and i think generally my nature is that if i'm gonna jump i dive you know and i kind of build the wings on the way down i really believe that it's better to say yes and then work it out uh, when you have a good intuition that this is the right thing to do of course and so it's always been my nature that i enjoy the unknown i enjoy the chaos i really enjoy the hustle you know in life so in a way i was in my element and what led you on to made.com how did that how did that come about what's the origins of that story i was basically pregnant with my second son i have two teenage boys and uh i just started to be a little bit tired about walking around you know building sites with a a, a huge belly and i thought i did nine years it's it's an industry when you work for someone so prestigious there is actually not a lot of creativity architecture is vastly technical you can spend two months doing you know, a toilet layout uh, or uh, working on pipe integration into the building. You know, a lot of it is actually very technical. And so I just was missing the creative aspect, you know, of how my career could be shaped slightly differently. And I uh, coincidentally uh, had a meeting with Brent Hoberman, uh, who was thinking of his next venture past, obviously, uh, lastminute.com. And he started to tell me about uh, MyDeco, which was this uh, big interior platform that he wanted to build, uh, an industry that was very fragmented. He obviously had the experience with travel and he wanted to apply the learnings in in a new sector. It all sounded vaguely interesting, but the truth is I didn't understand anything he was telling me. Um, And I, I, at the time, the internet for me was a practical tool to do certain things, but it wasn't an experiential, you know, kind of thing that I would do um, in order to, uh, you know, buy product or, or find solutions. It was still quite early. And so basically he convinced me that this was the right thing for me. And I think at the time um, I trusted him. I thought he knows what he's talking about. He's a very respected and accomplished entrepreneur. He thinks I can help his business. I'm going to jump and trust him. Um, so even though I really didn't believe I could really help and I was pregnant and I told him, surely you don't want to hire a pregnant person to your startup. Uh, and he said, you should still come. And I just felt that this was the right kind of, uh, impulsion. And it's what drove me to swap. So he gave me about two days to make my decision. So I left my career as an architect, um, at the total despair of my parents who didn't understand at all what I was going towards. Uh, and then we started my deco and I actually, after three years, I learned a lot, amazing uh, learning curve for me, working closely with him and his team. But eventually, again, I was missing the kind of creative output because we were not really building a brand. It was it was kind of a, a platform project. And that's how Med.com kind of branched out. We just thought instead of me leaving, what don't we uh, start something different within the same space since we already had an infrastructure? And um, and Made, Made was born in, in 2009. What excited you day to day about Made.com specifically? Was it the the design element? Was it the the was it just pure you loved furniture and loved aesthetics? What what excited you day to day about Made.com? So I've never been passionate about furniture or interior. I'm a, I'm, I was an architect, so I had a good understanding for creating space, but it wasn't a hobby or anything. Um, what I thought was really interesting was that I was well aware of the precarity that a lot of young designers find themselves coming out of college with a degree uh, and not having any route to market for their talent. Because if you are a furniture retailer, you don't put bets on new designer for the simple reason that there is a huge cost of implementation and operational uh, that connects to creating new collection. You have to create stock. You have to distribute the stock in all the stores. So you don't take a lot of risk. 
it's an industry that's quite boring because of its kind of, you know, uh, structure. And so the idea that we could reverse that model and have a, a direct uh, connection between the consumer, the designer, and the manufacturer cutting all the uh, middlemen that basically take their cuts in this process, creating transparency, was for me super exciting. So the process was that we would select the best designs from uh, the, the graduate uh, shows. So I would go to the graduate shows, identify some of the best designers. We then do a lot of uh, research around the market fit for that product. And if it wasn't a product that we could sell for a lot less than what the market could offer, we would not develop it. So there was a, a very commercial outlook on what we were doing, but mm. we were choosing designs which were unique. And we would then find a manufacturer uh, anywhere actually around the world who had a really large uh, map of, of suppliers and ask them to create a, uh, a prototype, but a prototype which would allow for it to be reproduced uh, through minimum quantity. So we would create the prototype, put it out, and then we would basically group orders. And when we reach uh, minimum order quantities, we then manufacture it and then dispatch it. So there was a long waiting time, but we, you would end up with something you really loved that was unique. And the price was, you know, extremely advantageous compared to what was available out there for anything design oriented. And what I found exciting and what I found exciting in what I'm doing now is I don't believe that mass market has uh, or doesn't deserve just as good design as people that can afford it. Actually, good design doesn't have to cost more. Uh, then, you know, in a, in a sense, a good design is not more expensive uh, than bad design. You know, it's actually often quite effective in material use, uh, so it can be very efficient. But we have this kind of cultural understanding that the mass doesn't care, you know. Uh, and, and I think that's what I was always I'm interested to look at in terms of, you know, building businesses is how can we improve, you know, everyday life of people through you know, an experience that will connect them with quality. And that's visual quality, that's material quality, and that's functional quality in the case, you know, the, of furniture. So I was super excited about uh, about that aspect. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it, for me personally, and, and I know a lot of friends of mine, a lot of it with, with, with furniture and design comes down to pride, right? I, I'm, I'm more proud if I have a sofa and a coffee table and a rug that, that maybe I put a bit of effort into or I source from somewhere and I'm really proud of it rather than just a Swedish furniture brand. You know, I'm just just ordering mm -hmm. online and just having something mm -hmm. that the neighbors have. It's just, I, I feel a pride is a big part of it. Mm, I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in our homes uh, having an environment that's conducive to enjoying yourself uh, is, is super important. It's actually a, a, a part of our well-being we don't always talk about. You know, the environment we create around ourselves, the smell, the temperature, the decor, the texture. You know, what I'm, with what I'm doing now, I realize that, you know, developing sensuality and our ability to enjoy, uh, you know, the environment we create around ourselves is a huge part of feeling good. Mm, without a doubt. How long were you at made.com in total? Medicom, the previous company. So yeah, we launched in 2010, and I stepped down in 2015. That was what did it feel like stepping away? Did did you are you one of these co-founders that associates your your identity with the business that you're in? Chloe from Made.com kind of rolls off people's tongue, right? That's what that's what you you're you were known for. Obviously, you're known for something different now. Did it feel strange stepping away because Made.com as a brand? is obviously more well known than the company you were before as prestigious as it was made.com mm -hmm. is a, is a, is a you know to the to the regular person on the street is a you're, you're chloe from made.com was that strange mm -hmm. stepping away or you just don't associate yourself with a specific brand no, of course it was my first you know kind of uh, founder co-founder project i had never even dreamed that i would be in that position ever to, to co-create a business um, and it was never my ambition to become a founder, you know, and it was never my ambition to become the CEO that I am today. Um, I get just, things just happen. And I think the quality maybe that I have is I embrace opportunities. And so we've made, you know, the, the change in the way that people started seeing me as Chloe from Med.com, it was more something that came from the outside. You know, you don't have time to think about these things when you're building a business, uh, especially in the tech sector, especially when it's going well, n n you know, it's never enough. 
you on this exponential curve of growth uh, and you have absolutely no time to think about who you are and what you're doing uh, and even sometimes how is this affecting your health how is this affecting your family um, you know you, you have guilt you know as a mother as, as a wife and as a person towards the rest of your family there is a huge amount of guilt because the business sucks you in in a way that's unhealthy uh, you know a lot of the times so you're aware of this but you keep going you know so i think it's only later that i realize you know the impact it had on my family um, and that their view of me had changed slightly in the way that i had built you know a profile and i was representing a business which obviously was never the case before so that's something that happens almost unconsciously more than consciously, unless you seek it. But I think in my case, you know, because I was the only woman in the team uh, at, at the found, you know, the founding team, and I had a family and I had children, I really was able to connect with the consumer that we were targeting. So my home became a showroom. You know, I created all the visuals for the brand. It became very personal. My kids did all the kids campaign for the kids furniture because it was at the time where a brand is becoming more personal. A brand is start, starting to have one-on-one -on -one conversation with the consumer thanks to social media. We're talking Facebook prepaid. That's when we were launching. We actually used Facebook as a way to target consumer in a way that was so effective back then. And it's actually how we ended up, you know, really getting initial traction. So for me, it was more, I'm talking to people who like me, enjoy design, who like me looking for solutions, other mothers, you know, who have a home, as you said, that they're proud of and they want to invest in it in a way that's personal to them. So I was, it was very relatable. You know, it's, it was this new age of, of uh, companies which are starting to feel more like a conversation with your consumers rather than I'm talking at you uh, with a big branding message and I'm telling you who we are. Med.com started by us asking people, what is it you want? What product would you like? So it was a very different kind of dynamic and which allowed us to remain very human, you know, through the process, I think. Mm. Can you tell us about the first day you woke up after you left made.com? How, how different was that waking up and not being, not being a part of it? And what was that day like for you personally? Well, I mean, first it wasn't a day because it took me about almost a year to exit the business because it's not so simple. Uh, I was also helping the transition, you know, finding who would be leading the creative side, you know, so there was, there was a strong kind of ongoing overlap, which didn't feel like a big break. It wasn't like I woke up one day and I wasn't there. I had an ample amount of time to create the transition. I was burned out, you know, this is the thing that... I think happens to a lot of founders, a couple of things I realized. One is my quality as a founder was not uh, as much needed now when the company was more than 200 people. And I think it's important as a founder to know when that's the case and either find a different way to work or to just, you know, step down and, and find other things to do while continuing to support and represent the business, which has been, you know, very easy for me to do because I love what we created. I think it's still great you know i'm very attached to it and i think the work that the team has done after i stepped down has been amazing so for me i'm just as proud now that i was then and and the other thing was that i i just needed a break physically you know and this is also what led me into what i'm doing now is that we live in this world where we believe that you know it's only through suffering that we can grow this kind of no pain no gain motto that just gets us in this intense uh, you know, kind of constant uh, acceleration uh, of, of, you know, growth and expectation and achievement and self-improvement. It's this kind of linear thinking. It's always better more. And I think that after a while uh, burns you out because actually we are cyclic beings. We're not linear beings. We, we have highs and lows. It's normal. And we should really celebrate that you're not supposed to always go better, faster, harder, uh, because it's absolutely unsustainable. So I, I reached my breaking point. You know, I was like five years uh, doing something I've never done before, traveling around the world um, at least, you know, two weeks um, every couple of months when my kids were like three and five. Um, and you just do it because it's working, because it's exciting, because people are celebrating what you're doing. And, you know, we were very, very lucky that way. But it's very taxing on an individual, individual level. 
what what break did you give yourself between between Maid and and Kama, which which we're going to get on and talk about next? It was the best. I mean, it was the best. I basically uh, stepped down. First, I did a bit of a reboot. I found this incredible clinic called Sha in Alicante, Spain, which took me uh, from a yeah, pretty low bottom uh, and rebooted me uh, in two weeks, day by day. It was an incredible program. I started to get introduced uh, to holistic uh, you know, science and holistic uh, health when I was there. I learned how to meditate with a master who then I worked with for about a year after that. And I decided to have what I call a yes year. I had worked since I was very young, 14, 15, I was, you know, already working. I was raised by a single mother. We had, you know, not a lot of uh, money when I grew up. So there was an initial sense of responsibility that I need to be self-sufficient and I would never depend, you know, on anyone else. So I had that drive. And so I basically decided to stop working full time. I also separated from my uh, husband as part of, you know, this challenging transition is that my, my marriage, you know, definitely fell apart, you know, through multiple reasons, but I think the level of stress and, uh, and tension that I was experimenting for sure had an impact there. So I found myself um, financially independent uh, with my children only 50% of the time uh, and without a full-time job for the first time in my life. And I ended up saying yes to things I never said yes before, trips and Burning Man and going to different conferences and traveling and, and experimenting with just new ideas, new people, basically coming out of my shell and, um, and starting to rethink really at every step, you know, who I am, who I want, what I want to do, you know, all of those basic questions, this cliche, you know, of what, you know, breaks you is the opportunity to uh, rethink from, from the ground up. And this is what I did. I ended up really um, investigating a lot of ideas around education, around the way we live in society, around sexuality, you know, around relationship. And I took the time to really investigate, meet people, discuss those topics and really enrich my landscape. And in the meantime, because I was still, you know, not able to do nothing, I decided to set up a small consultancy to start, you know, doing some advisory uh, for certain brands. And I also joined uh, Felix Capital as a venture partner, which is an amazing VC fund base in London, but which invests, you know, globally. And that was a very important step for me because I knew I wanted to create a business. I knew I had an idea for that. But I had never really been in a position to fundraise, to understand, you know, the dynamic of, you know, venture capital. And so this was really my, my opportunity to learn. And at the same time, I started to connect with Soho House. Nick Jones actually called me to um, ask me some support for the launch of Soho Home, which was their, their new homeware brand. And I decided to start helping on that. And eventually, over, you know, the, the course of the following four years, I ended up uh, joining them as chief creative officer uh, for the whole group and really helping them with their digital transformation. So I, I spent two years uh, not working full time and really enjoying myself, there's, which I recommend. Yeah, there's a ton to unpack there, right? If we if we go back to that two week reset, as you put it, and 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 with your ex husband, do you the stress of of of, of running a business and, and traveling and, and being such a big part of, of made.com was it after you left made.com and things started to settle that you separated from your husband or was it was a previous with with the stress because it's interesting that if it calmed down and then you separated was that just more mental clarity from your point of view that you've seen something you didn't because you were too busy am i thinking too much into that <laughs> No, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I think that the, there were issues in the sense that we, we just slightly went into different direction. You know, when I, when I met uh, my ex-husband, I was an architect, I didn't have a network in London, I was not a very, uh, you know, uh, connected or social animal at all. And then through the experience of made, I came out of my shell. I had to uh, front the business. I had to become a little bit more public. I had to articulate my thoughts, which is not something that I, I had 
to do before. And I think it gave me a different perspective on the world. I realized that, you know, what I needed back then was different from what I need now. And, you know, I have an extremely good relationship with my ex-husband. We actually lived together for a year before we properly separated so that the kids could have a transition. We did it in a very, very progressive way. And that's probably because I didn't grow up with parents which, you know, who were together. My parents separated when I was one year old. And uh, there was a lot of a lot of very serious amount of friction and trauma in that relationship. So for me, I carried the weight of the dysfunctioning, you know, uh, relationship uh, that my parents represented. And I was determined to create something very different for my own children. So I think I, I just, the transition for me was, it was just happening. You know, I don't intend to fight things. And as I say, I don't spend a lot of time looking back. I'm very aware. I try to be very conscious and aware when I make the decision for what's happening. And I think it was a slow, uh, you know, a slow progression towards something else. I don't see it as a collapse in a sense that for me, uh, you know, we, we put quite a lot of expectations on, uh, you know, on marriage and relationship. We expect the, the partner to be so many things today. And for me, I think the marriage needs a complete you know, disrupt, disruptive, creative, you know, intervention, uh, which should look like uh, let's get together and promise to be respectful and loving to each other. And that if we do separate, we still be respectful and loving to each other, because that's really the priority, uh, rather than promising to be together forever. Because how can anyone know who they will be next year? You know, it's just not realistic. So I, I realize that's one of the big reflections that I had around marriage and how we set ourselves for failure, because actually the model we go by is an ideal. That's the exception a lot of the time. And that we then have a lot of guilt and a lot of pain trying to uh, reconcile being together when actually we, you know, may need space from each other. And that's, that's something that should be absolutely accepted and not something we should judge. There was a lot of judgment, you know, when I separated. Everyone had an opinion. But ultimately, uh, I knew, and so did my ex-husband, that this was the best for us. And we are both really happy people. Um, and, and I think that's just realizing that you, you can't be successful if you create uh, an expectation that's unrealistic. So what led you on? What was the light bulb moment for Kama? And, and, and leading on from, um, from your separation from your husband, do you fully believe that Kama wouldn't be a thing if you if you didn't make that decision? I have no idea. I don't ask myself those kinds of questions because I don't think they have you know they make much sense. I think that I feel very much in my path. I feel that where I am today is absolutely where I need to be. There is a strong sense of connection with what I'm doing that goes way beyond myself, my own success. You know, this is for the first time in my life, I'm doing something that is mission driven. You know, there is an opportunity really to um, do something that is important for the world. And I do it for my own kids uh, because I want them to grow in a world where there is a better model for, uh, you know, sexuality and intimacy. And I think that the learnings I've had have shaped the thinking. I've had this idea 15 years ago, you know, so in, in a way, separated, not separated, divorced, not divorced. I, I don't think really uh, it, it would have made a difference. I would have gone into that area. What changed is that I understood something fundamental, is that we are very focused on pain and suffering in our society. And as I said earlier, so much of the decision we make is pushing ourselves. And I think that's absolutely fine occasionally. Of course, it is through you know, adversity that we learn the fastest, but it's not sustainable. We, we can't live that way. And so my realization was that I started researching how do we create balance in our system? How do we create an alternative to stress, you know, when we are constantly exposed to it, when we live in big cities, when we, we you know, be very busy and constantly stimulated. And that's when I started to connecting from a scientific level to the potential that pleasure can bring. And, and pleasure is really designed in our system as a way to go back to homeostasis, which is balance. It's, it's actually what we've got as a tool to alleviate stress and tension and trauma. So when we don't connect with pleasure and when pleasure is considered frivolous 
as I said earlier, the fact that maybe, you know, even the professional within our field, in, in the medical field, you know, in sexuality, your gynecologist, your urologist, don't ask you, do you enjoy sex? Do you have pleasure? You know, is there something that you feel unsafe about? Is there something you we should discuss? If those professionals don't have this conversation and you're not learning about it at school, then however you're going to find out how it works and how your body can help you, you know, navigate life in, in a positive way. So the, the, the shift really for me was when I went on this retreat and I realized that, you know, mindfulness was an opportunity to shift where our state of mind and that mindfulness isn't necessarily meditating in your head. I was actually quite surprised to see the form of distortion that the, uh, the, the kind of new age meditation uh, has created with, uh, with meditation and mindfulness, which was never really intended to be sitting still and measuring brain activity by trying not to think. You know, when you talk to, uh, you know, Tibetan monk, they, they find it quite funny that we are measuring brain waves when we meditate, because for them, meditation is a heart-centered experience. It happens in the body. So the cerebral nature of our culture, yet again, you know, hijacked something and put it straight back where the problem is. And so the, the big moment for me was to realize we can meditate in our body. We can, we can create connection in the body, because when you meditate in the body, you're focusing on sensations and sensations are real. So you can actually stay there. When you meditate in your brain and you try not to think, those thoughts aren't real. They're still in a way created by your you know, ego, uh, you know, trying to take over the moment. So I just had that massive shift and I realized we are a completely disembodied culture. We are not learning from you know, Latin American, African culture who celebrate the body as a way to communicate, express, uh, and connect and, 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 you know, become more individual. We live in a very linear society where everything is close to action, where even when you go to the gym, the fitness machines are still very linear. It's completely counterintuitive to the way our body is designed. And the fact that we don't get educated on this technology that we have, the, the body's technology for me uh, is the most advanced technology we would ever interact with in our entire, entire life. Uh, it's four million years of evolution. And we know so little about it. You know, we don't get educated a lot. Even at school, there's so little around the body. We talk about biology and we talk about physics and we intend to separate things outside of the body. You know, we live in the science of separation where we take a piece of cell, we look at it in isolation, we make conclusions on it, and then we think we've learned. But it's kind of, um, you know, making total abstraction of the interconnectedness of the way that we are really structured. And this is this dissociation, this separation that creates the mental health epidemic that we are uh, suffering from today, because without that connection, we don't know who we are, we don't know what we want. And if we don't know what we want and we're not driven by desire, we lose ourselves, which is a lot of what people are experiencing today. Yeah. And, and si signing up to Kama, what does it take you through a, a sexual journey? Does it, does it figure out where you are and where you need to be? Does it, what way when you sign up to Kama, what way does it bring you through that? Well, it's, it's difficult because, the, you know, we're we creating a category uh, at, this, at the same time. Uh, so, you know, unlike many other industries where you'll have a certain amount of data points to take reference from, either behavioral data from consumer or at least industry references, because there is so little and sexual pleasure and sexuality is the most under-researched area of our health. So also from the, uh, you know, the, the, the medical side, we also don't have a lot of information. As a new entry in this category, which is made of a handful of other businesses today, we are trying to understand what is the fit, you know, what's the market fit today with our proposition, which is to put pleasure at the center of your, of your well-being. You know, so is it about just uh, using pleasure as a way to eliminate stress? And that's not even sexual at all. Uh, is it using pleasure uh, as a way to create connection and intimacy? And again, that doesn't have to be sexual. Or it is about sex education and actually understanding what skills you can learn in order to find more pleasure, have bigger orgasm, uh, give more pleasure to a partner, 
uh, express your body more accurately for getting what you want. That becomes, you know, the sexual environment. So at the moment, what we found is that people are desperate for education and connection. You know, the couples are struggling to connect and younger generation have no source of education uh, today apart from pornography. You know, it's, it's, it's the bigger, biggest part of our uh, education around sexuality is what not to do. That's kind of what we get told, but very little of it is what to do. So we are a practical educational platform. You can learn how to give a better blowjob. You can learn how to finger someone. You can learn how to squirt, but you can also learn to find, you know, uh, peace within yourself and connect and build a relationship, an intimate relationship with yourself and understanding, you know, pleasure in your body so that when you go and meet someone else, you can take that with you. You're not depending on another person to give you pleasure, which is a big misunderstanding that someone gives us pleasure. Actually, we create the sensations for ourselves. So whether we do it on our own or with another person, the body doesn't really know the difference. There's so much we can do through solo practice, which we promote heavily, you know, at the center of the Kama experience is, you know, that solo work uh, that you need to do before you go and have, you know, an encounter with someone else. I seen stats a couple of months ago from from Pornhub, and obviously Pornhub are their usage has gone through the roof, right? Um, pandemic, people not being able to um, meet each other, lockdowns, all that sort of stuff. Your, what's your view on on porn? Do you think do you think it's dangerous? Do you think it's damaging? Do you think it's an, it's necessary to explore your sexuality and to stimulate yourself? What's your thoughts on it? So, I mean, it's a big topic and I think about it a lot. I don't think it's wrong, wrong. Uh, I think there's a lot of wrong things about it. I think that the, the bigger platform and not taking a huge amount of responsibility from what they're doing, you know, it's like supermarket, they invest in healthy eating. You, you, you got to have a part of your business that is actually consciously educating and doing the right thing, which they're not doing. So I think that's definitely one of the issues. Pornography has evolved a lot you know, in the past few years. Uh, it used to be uh, relatively traumatic. So my generation got slightly traumatized by it because we had nothing. And suddenly we had, you know, free accessible porn, which was very opti opti uh, objectifying for women. So there was no real alternatives, very much a male point of view. So that of course was great. And what wasn't great in particular is that when porn became free and there was no more money in production, then it started to look like amateur porn, except it was just still porn. So the, the fantasy wasn't very clear. And young people who would look at porn started thinking, oh, this is how you have sex, mm -hmm. rather than this is an arousal system that kind of triggers you know, your, your arousal so that you can maybe masturbate on it or something like this. But it is not a model for sex. And that's the nuance which really is important here. So because they are not really educating people on what's right and what's not, and because porn is done for the camera, there is no intimacy. And actually, you know, one of the key issues we have with pornography is that the, the female body is not aroused. The female body changes anatomically the same amount as a male, the, the male genitals. They engorge the same way. They have the same percentage of increase in volume through arousal. That's something you never see in porn. And so we are looking at something that's just not realistic. You know, you can't really have sex that way because it just wouldn't provide a lot of pleasure for the receiver, for example. What I've noticed lately, which has been, you know, I think a really good development around it, is that we are seeing now uh, young people uh, who are young, not all young people, but single people, so on their own, who are just feeling themselves when they masturbate. So a lot of, a lot of uh, research that we do uh, at Kama is looking at those videos to understand different masturbation, masturbation techniques. Last month, we did a big focus on squirting and really the importance for every woman or person with a vulva to understand that squirting is an essential part of their arousal system. If we want to start experiencing internal pleasure, we have to reconcile with this idea of fluid, you know, leaving our urethra. It's absolutely essential because it's what impacts all our internal structure. It's a detonator for activating the inside, you know, of, of, the, geni of the female genitals. So we want to teach everyone how to do this and demystify a practice which is illegal in the UK because it's considered to be pee, for example, which is completely nonsense. Because if it happens in the body, 
during arousal, uh, after all these years of evolution, is because it really has a function. And we should really respect that when the body does something, it has a reason to do it. Uh, and no one can tell you otherwise. And this is really the key to well-being. If it feels good for you, it's good enough. No one can tell you otherwise. And so what we have started to discover is that those girls are touching themselves, they are masturbating in a particular way, they're using toys in a particular way, and it's extremely informative because they're doing it for themselves, because they're actually having a good time. So when that's the case, then I think it is educational. So there's always a possibility for something quite bad to become bad, rather you know, good, given that the people are doing it for the right reasons. And obviously, other platforms are emerging, which are starting to break, you know, the uh, monopole of the of the bigger platforms, uh, and that's you know exploded, you know, during lockdown. So I think again, that's that's good for them to have a little bit of competition, so they can work a little bit harder in doing what they do better, because the lack, as I say, of responsibility is the biggest issue there. Of course, uh, this isn't scientific whatsoever, but <laughs> I'm con- I'm convinced. In the UK and, and Ireland and most of Western Europe, 100% of teenagers, especially teenage boys, learn about sex from porn. 100%. It has yes. to be. It's, it's, it's proven. It's not, uh, it's not scientific, but it's definitely proven. By the time they are seven, seven, they've seen a porn clip. I'm not saying they're spending time masturbating on it, but somehow they're aware of porn. Very young. And by the way, this is a conversation very few parents have with their children. I talk to so many parents say, have you talked to your kids about porn? How old are they? You need to talk to them about porn now. Because if they know about it and they understand what it is, which is not, a, it's not an easy conversation to have, I had to really think about it myself. You know, how do you deliver that message? And it's so important that parents take the initiative of introducing this notion to their kids, because otherwise, um, you know, looking at something like porn with no information can be really traumatic and also mislead you, obviously, in your behavior. Of course. And and with speaking about, about things like this, you said in that interview you had with, with Emma from Killing Kittens that you, mm-hmm. you raised this round of funding in the U.S., was was that because that's where you just wanted to raise from or or because UK investors weren't weren't willing to speak about things like this and in, or invest in 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 sex yeah i've noticed something interesting now that i'm in this kind of delicate field is that i would say that the consumer in europe is more open minded they have a relationship to sexuality that is a lot more like it's part of everyday life you know and we talk about it and it's okay. UK, maybe a little less so, obviously, because of the, just the, the general culture uh, is you know, as open as the rest of Europe. But generally, I would say Europe, uh, you know, at consumer level, is quite open about sexuality. In the US, um, there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of issues, huge issues around sexuality, you know, which aren't really resolved at consumer level. When it comes to the VC kind of community, um, I find it's the opposite that a lot of European VC come from a more traditional background. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of diversity in the community in Europe. And as a result, having that conversation uh, for the first time for a lot of them was actually very difficult. And I wasn't really getting through with just how, it, for me, it's common sense. I tap into, into common sense. When I pitch, I tap into common sense. I'm like, kids are being educated by porn. Do you have children? Would you like, don't you think it would be good for them to have something else? No one else is teaching them. Let's do it in a way that's beautiful, that's empowering, that is respectful, that's scientific. There is no argument against it, in my view. Uh, But it was difficult to get that across. And and so I decided to go to the U.S. when I had no contact there. I don't know any U.S. investors and actually uh, talk to people I didn't know. Uh, and, and I was amazed. The conversation was wholly different. I had people who understood the opportunity, who had already looked at you know, what that could look like, um, who just had a very mature conversation, which was not about the awkwardness of it, but actually the opportunity on a commercial uh, uh, level. So that's basically what happened. You know, it was just my realization, trying to do the best for the business, 
uh, having people and partners who are able to speak about it, uh, as you say, because that's essential that I have a community around me of people who are not finding it difficult to speak about the business. Otherwise, it's not really helping me. So I ended up raising from, you know, relatively large investors who don't usually invest in, you know, uh, experimental new uh, kind of industries. But I, I think wellness has become such an enormous area for the consumer who does not want to depend anymore on, you know, necessarily the, only the medical uh, solutions uh, and, and start looking at life from a pro more preventive uh, aspect. So it, it just became much more logical there. And the conversation was just a lot more fluid. It's it's a really interesting one that it's it's so different than consumer and VC. It's 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 the opposite. It's between UK and US. Did did you see those investors? And I'm really curious to hear those investors in the UK. When you were saying, "Do you have kids? They will learn about sex through porn." Do you think that it made them super uncomfortable because they're looking at themselves as maybe not doing enough, depending how old their kids were? Does that did you did you see that in them that maybe they were looking at themselves saying I've maybe failed slightly here? No, I don't think so. I think the main issue was that we get heavily educated around the idea that sex and work do not they're not compatible. So the idea that I was in an office in a boardroom talking about sex the way I do, by the way, I use all the words. <laughs> I use all the words. I don't wrap it up because otherwise I'm not doing my job, right? So I would just tell them about statistics around, you know, how much, you know, anal, anal practice, which is vast, vastly, you know, represented in porn, is affecting the health of a younger generation who, you know, do those practices and prepare it and they really hurt their body. I would talk about all of the difficult aspects of why this is important purposely to see whether they could take it. And I think it was too hard because we don't talk about these things. And I was thinking the other day about the fact that, you know, where should Kama go? Should Kama should become a school where we educate children, but also we should educate about sexuality and intimacy in the corporate world. Why don't, it's the one topic, you know, there is an, another business in the States as part of the same portfolio uh, as one of my investors. They do health and wellness support within corporation. You know, so they basically provide uh, support for pregnant women, for any situation like this. The one topic that the corporation are rejecting is sexuality. And it's like the more we reject it, the less we have the conversation, the more problem we're going to have. There is a direct correlation between not having the conversation and the negative impact this has on people. Wow. You know, we know this from school. We know this from university in the States. The numbers are really scary. The more we repress education, the more we end up with teenage pregnancy, sexual assault, all of the issues. It's symmetrical. So we've got to be very careful that if we reject it in any part of our kind of environment, then that's where the problem happens, which they do, as we know. Of course. This is a huge issue massive it's it's so clear and I, I don't believe there's anyone better to tackle it than you right and and i could literally i could sit here we're actually over time but i don't care because i could sit here all day talking to you about it and it's absolutely incredible what's your ultimate dream for Kama? what what can you what would you be able to sit back and look at and say i've this is not my job is done but i've, I've achieved what i want to achieve mm. I think one of the biggest issues we have in society today is that we have inherited models which are no longer suited. You know, we have a young generation, a Gen Z generation, 40% uh, of them identify as, as non-binary. They, they don't really want to conform to the systems and processes and, and values which uh, they can see are not working anymore. And so what happens when there is chaos around something like this is what's happening now, a huge conversation, a lot of politicized, you know, uh, uh, conversation around sexuality towards gender, identity, you know, it's, it's a very complex issue, very complex issue. And I get drawn into those conversations. I try so hard not to be political about it because I truly believe that sexuality is one of the most intuitive and natural thing we have. When the, the, the fetus is in, in the womb, it's touching his genitals already, right? So the connection to pleasure is something that is innate to our nature. And what I would love is for that to come back in people's life as something that is natural and accepted, regardless of the choices that we make. And, the, and, and I think where those, this young generation is 
kind of you know pushing pushing back and and finding sometimes some revolt is that the choice you make today don't have to define you and and if you want to change and do something else tomorrow that shouldn't be also a source of judgment you know even when i divorced i saw a lot of judgment on me for making that choice and that's what actually created the biggest despair in my transition was the lack of acceptance from others that this was the choice i was making for myself that i knew what i was doing that was going to protect my children and my ex-husband and myself from this change to have a negative impact and of course it's hard but you know that's what you work for and the judgment of others is so heavy in our life today so many of us are conditioned because we are dependent on judgment that others put on us and so i think where kama can help people is giving them the tools and by this i really mean a practical sex education something that you can embody that you can experience in your own body as a way to know is this right for me and when you realize it's right for you then you'll be able to embrace that choice and for that not to become you know a source of judgment you know from other people so it's really around building a new model uh, for sexuality and intimacy and often i talk about love because that love is another part of our life that is uh, very badly branded by society every association to love romantic love is to do with breaking our heart and falling and losing ourselves and probably never recover- recovering from a broken heart and those values and notions are very old i think they date from a time where we were trying to uh, make sure people were not going to marry for love because they had to marry for interest because that's what society needed at the time but this is no longer really valid today and yet we are still living by those values that if we open our heart or if we become connected emotionally then something bad's going to happen to us you know and this translates in most relationships so i think love sex and intimacy needs a full rebrand we we need aspiration uh, we need uh, we need health and we need education you know to come in 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 that area uh, so that we can fully embrace how transformative sexuality can be for us you know my biggest discovery has been that sexuality isn't just about sex sexuality is the driving force it's the life force it's the only energy we create every other energy we consume we have this ability to self generate life force into our system and from there we can uh, channel it into creativity um into action into connection and if we don't tap into that space then we get lost we get the wrong connection we can make the wrong choice and as i said earlier we are not uh, really where we need to be and that's where you know mental health uh, you know issues arise usually you use the word judgment a lot um in in the last few minutes and and it brings up i heard an interview yesterday which was fascinating and it was around only fans mm, and there was people yes. on there was people on two sides of the fence there was people saying you know it's it's quite toxic and then there was there was only fans creators saying this is mm. this is empowering for me mm-hmm. what what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on only because only fans especially amongst gen z is massive right it's 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 having such an impact whether you see it as good or bad it's ha- it's having a huge impact what are your thoughts on on only fans well first i think it's great that finally the porn the, you know the big porn sites are getting some competition because they have been taking all the money from the creators and uh, from any other industry you know there's been a delocalization uh, through the creator you know all the platforms a lot of platforms today are celebrating and allowing uh creators to to really make money from from what they create so this was an area where this was not the case so you know it's it's great to critique but what's important to say what it is it helping because it is definitely a little bit better than the traditional porn sites uh which are basically operating under the radar you know taking uh, making a, i mean incredible amount of money 30% of our world's traffic still goes to those sites so a little bit of of uh, diversity in the proposition is always going to be a, a good thing only fine is not just about sex i think only fine could become a platform for expression uh, of self uh, which is explicit whichever way that can go it's important to also remember that as a creator in that area you do not have any platform to represent you apart from a porn site so again critics criticize if you want but what choice 
do they have when uh, you know all of the big acquisition platform are taking a, such a hypocritical view on how to regulate this industry? You know, covering the nipple does not make it more or less sexual. I actually would argue makes it more sexual. So if those platforms are not taking again responsibility and have decided to block the bad, when you block the bad, you block the good. The industry hasn't had an opportunity to better itself for the past 15 years because of this kind of approach. So I see OnlyFans as a new opportunity for people to uh, express themselves, uh, make money from it. As you well know, the whole sex industry got extremely affected. All the sex workers got extremely affected during lockdown. Um, and a lot of them found this opportunity to continue to do their work by being able to monetize it. So I, 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 at the moment, I think it's an opportunity, of course, as with always. You know, what are the values of the platform? Who do they want to be as a brand? Could they actually start creating a sort of standard by which people should operate on the platform the same way Airbnb, you know, started by taking all the photos themselves and creating an environment that would elevate the kind of content that's on their platform. You know, there is a way that this can be done. So that would, you know, at the end of the day, that would be the intention of the founders to drive it in whatever direction that they want. But I think in terms of a proposition, it's adding value. Really well put. Really well put. Chloe, this has absolutely made my day. Thank you so much for jumping on. I'm super excited to see how, how Kama develops. And and I think you should. You obviously are really proud of what you're doing and you should be. It's absolutely incredible. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I have a big smile on my face. It's been lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your interest. And I hope that I'm going to see you on Kama very soon. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the final episode in this Voice by Madina's Sex Tech series. We were really excited to talk to the best sex tech founders in the UK and get their insight into what it's like to build a sex tech business. So we really hope you enjoyed those conversations. Make sure to go to maddiness.com and check out the complimentary article with today's guest Chloe and the previous articles as well. We'll be back with a new series really soon, so make sure you subscribe for updates.